We have begun the month of Elul, the month that precedes Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, the high holidays. And this is the month that technically, even though it ends on Rosh Hashanah, the, the ideas and the themes and the focus that we tend to give to this month, the month of Elul, actually goes 10 days into next month all the way to Yom Kippur, which of course is the climax of these days, the days of awe, the days of goodwill, the days of reconnecting to who we really are, and known collectively as the days of Elul. As we know, the Sephardic communities have already begun saying the Slichot, the prayers of repentance, the prayers of atonement. Ashkenazic communities begin Slichot the week before Rosh Hashanah. There are other customs that Jewish communities do during the month of Elul, Namely, there is a psalm that we say, Psalm 27, Le David Hashem Or Viishi, uh, that's said twice a day at the conclusion of prayers. There is the custom to blow the shofar each morning after Shachar's services. Of course, there's a mitzvah on Rosh Hashanah to blow the shofar. We do it on each day of Rosh Hashanah 100 times. But four times each morning of the month of Elul, we blow the shofar as a way of preparation. And of course, because we're in middle of the month of Elul, it's important for us to focus on these days and to try to understand what is their meaning, what's the power, what's the opportunity of these days, what should we focus on, how do we maximize our immersion and our growth and our spiritual development over the month of Elul. Now, of course, the general attitude of the month is that this is a month of preparation a month of readiness to prepare ourselves for the high holidays and for Rosh Hashanah and for Yom Kippur. And of course, the general theme of these days is to try to reconnect to God and reconnect to Torah, reconnect to ourselves, reconnect to our soul, to remember what we're living for, to remember what really matters. It's this touch point with who we really are and what we really are striving to achieve in our lives that we do every year. Of course, Rosh Hashanah is also the day of judgment, it's a day of awe, and it's a day that we're told that every human passes before God like sheep, and God determines what's going to happen to them over the upcoming year. And therefore, there's also an element of grave trepidation. Who knows whether or not we will actually be successful in passing the test, in receiving a positive judgment for the upcoming year, of course, the year that's passed by, there's been all kinds of things that happened. Some people succeeded in meteoric ways. Others faltered. Some got health problems. Some were healed. Some died young. Some lived long. There's all kinds of things that happened that we believe that that was all determined on Rosh Hashanah. And therefore, this is like the month before the Judgment Day that we try to prepare ourselves so that we're best equipped to receive a favorable judgment. So that's some of the general ideas. Now, of course, the Muslim masters would make a very big deal about the month of Elul and really try to connect it and to work on it. And my grandfather, blessed memory, he would actually do Elul twice every year because he would prepare 40 days before Elul began. He would do like a dry run of the Elul 
that begins with the first day of Elul, goes all the way through Yom Kippur. So he would do 40 days of preparation. For the 40 days of preparation, he would redo it. And every year, he would focus on a different angle, a different approach, a different theme that would accompany him and accompany his lectures that he would give throughout the course of the month. So he would give a discourse in the yeshiva that he ran uh, every week. And it would be because it was the month of Elul, he would sometimes do it twice a week. And he would take a theme and build upon that theme and, and reach a crescendo every year on Yom Kippur, building up this idea, this treatise that he had developed and using that as a theme, as an approach to understand uh, Elul and, of course, the days of the high holidays. And I, I can say personally that when he was amidst this month, it dominated his entire life, his thoughts, his responses to, to students. He would kind of disengage from the physical world and really connect to the spiritual world on even a deeper level than he was typically accustomed to. Just to illustrate this, my eldest brother had a baby girl who was born during this month and he approached my grandfather and he asked him, well, what should I name my daughter? And he responded, you should name her Elula, which of course is a non-existent name. But he was so consumed with the month of Elul, it was always on his mind that it kind of had to be his suggestion. And we're familiar with the stories perhaps of the legends of yore when they would announce in the shul the week before the month of Elul began. They would announce with a shrill, the month of Elul, there is the legend that people would faint. There, were, there, were, there was such a seriousness and such a trepidation associated with this month that it would just it would it would strike people to their core and really awaken them. And some people couldn't even handle it and would just collapse. So, what's the idea of this month? And what are some of the themes? What are some of the angles that we could use to best prepare ourselves for the high holidays that are swiftly approaching? So, maybe you want to share an idea that my grandfather wrote one of the years in his writings. So we know historically these 40 days, they parallel the third of the 40 days, the third cycle of 40 days where Moses ascended to heaven to get the second set of tablets. Of course, on the day that we celebrate as Shavuos, uh, Shavuot, the, the festival of Shavuot, that was the day where the Ten Commandments happened, the Sinai revelation happened, national revelation, the entire nation experiences prophecy, they hear God, they hear the Ten Commandments, everyone is totally amazed by this experience. The following day, Moses ascends to heaven to get the first set of tablets. He spends 40 days there, doesn't eat, doesn't drink, comes back down with tablets made by God, inscribed by God, and he arrives to the bottom, and of course, he experiences the disaster. The nation is sitting with a golden calf. He takes the first set of tablets, shatters them on the ground, takes the golden calf, grinds it up into dust, puts it in the water, makes everyone drink it. The people who sinned the golden calf, they die as a result of drinking that water. And during that entire day, Moses is intervening on the Jewish people's behalf, because God wants to destroy them. God wants to start from scratch. We'll start with Moses. Moses, you'll be the father of this new nation. We're going to get rid of everyone else. So Moses kind of stops the tide of the golden calf, 
he has now a shattered bits of of the of the first set of tablets and goes back up a second time for an additional 40 days and 40 nights this time to be granted forgiveness for the people let them be atoned for let them be expiated maybe they can reconnect again with god maybe he'll be willing to be close to them to give them torah like he initially had planned with the first set of tablets after 40 days god says to him okay now i'm willing to give you the second set of tablets and moses goes back down the mountain a second time prepares the tablets this is a tablet made by moses but inscribed by god and then ascends the mountain a third time, and that day that he ascends the mountain the third time is Rosh Chodesh Elul, is the first day of the month of Elul. He's there for a third 40-day period, and he descends the mountain on Yom Kippur with the second set of tablets and with the final forgiveness where God tells Moses, I have forgiven the people as you have requested, and once again, the relationship that the Jewish people have with the Almighty is restored to the way it was previously. So it's interesting that this period, these 40 days of the month of El, mirrors the 40 days that Moses went the third time where God had forgiven at least the initial forgiveness and agreed to give the people a second set of tablets. That mirrors those 40 days. My grandfather pointed out that the Talmud tells us that from conception until the child is formed, or at least the, the, the zygote or the embryo is formed, it's 40 days. And my grandfather quoted the commentaries that say a very deep idea. They say that the creation of a new entity takes 40 days. So you have conception, and then it takes 40 days for something to form for something to come together to become a new entity. And the 40 days that Moses the first time goes up to heaven to receive the first tablets, that is the creation of a new entity, a new Moses, a new Jewish nation, a nation that's worthy of having God's Torah. And after 40 days, Moses is ready. He's got the Torah. But then he finds out that the nation is not quite ready. And therefore, he needs to do another 40 days, again, to recreate the nation and he himself as the representative. Now he has to, for 40 days, to cleanse and to purify and to refine the nation and him specifically as the representative to be able to be forgiven. And then once he's forgiven, back to square one, now it's time to do this process again, to recreate the nation that's worthy of having God's Torah and that's worthy of having the tablets, which is the embodiment, which is the representation of that. And what emerges is a very staggering insight. The essence of the days of Elul and the 10 days of repentance that follow it, these 40 days these are exactly the same 40 days that Moses went up during his third time, went up to the mountain and went up to heaven. And the power and the essence of these days is that we too have the opportunity to determine what kind of person we are creating at the end of these 40 days. It's a deep insight here. All of us, you know, we are who we are. And who we are 
is a result of a million decisions that were made and all kinds of baggage and history that we had that we bring with us. That's who we are. Every year, for 40 days, we say, no, we're going to recreate ourselves. We're going to build ourselves from scratch. We're going to take these 40 days and just like a child is created and formed and shaped over the course of 40 days, and just like the Jewish nation and Moses three times recreated themselves, first they get the first of the tablets, secondly, the second 40 days, to be expunged of the stench of the golden calf, and the third 40 days to again make themselves worthy and to recreate the nation and the individuals that's worthy of receiving God's Torah, we too are following that same pattern. We too are recreating ourselves. We too are determining what kind of person am I going to be this year? What kind of person is going to emerge after 40 days, after Yom Kippur, to be me for this year? And this is the general theme. But of course, whenever we talk about change, it's important to stress that change is very exceedingly, inordinately difficult. The current iteration of me, the current iteration of you, is entrenched. That version of ourselves is the incumbent. It seems to us that that version of ourselves cannot be moved, cannot be changed, cannot be altered. My grandfather was fond of quoting one of the Muslim masters who said that you take a, a cow and you put it in a barn, the cow assumes that the barn has been there forever. And the idea being that we are so accustomed to our surroundings, it's hard for us to even envision a different version of our surroundings. All the more so how difficult it is to envision a different self, a different identity, who we really are. But this is the power of the day. It's happened before. A nation that was not worthy of Torah became a nation that was worthy of Torah. 40 days, that's all it took. And so too for us, each year we have the opportunity to recreate who we are, to renew who we are. We have the opportunity to have a startup, to determine we could be anything, It's our choice. We have 40 days to choose. And my grandfather used to quote Rabbi Israel Salanter, and he would quote a verse in Hosea in scripture. The verse compares the Jewish people to a lad, to a young child. And what that means is that a young child, all the opportunities are open for them. They could do whatever they want. They could choose this career. They could choose that career the opportunities are endless. And as you make decisions, your options are being diminished and being narrowed and the amount of flexibility, the spectrum of opportunity is dwindling, is diminishing. But the Jewish nation is not like that. We have the month of Elul. We have every year the days of all, the days of goodwill, the days of repentance, the high holy days. These are the days where we decide, okay, now we're children again. We're youngsters again. We have 40 days to determine what we're going to be for this year, what's going to emerge after Yom Kippur. So it's a very powerful idea that shows us 
what exactly these days are and what their opportunity is. And of course, there are other angles for this month, for the month of Elul. So for example, another basic theme for the month is the idea that you have 30 days before every festival to prepare for that festival. So we know Pesach, when do we start preparing for Pesach for Passover? Right after Purim, because Purim is actually, is exactly a month before Pesach, before Passover, and therefore Purim is over, and right away we begin the throes of preparation for Passover. And in fact, that idea is already found in the Torah, that 30 days before a festival, it's time to begin preparing for the laws, and for the ideas, and for the concepts of that festival. Rosh Hashanah begins at the end of 30 days of Elul. Rosh Hashanah is a day of judgment. Rosh Hashanah is a day of introspection of reflection, of rumination, of thinking about who you really are. And therefore, if that is the essence of Rosh Hashanah, we have 30 days to prepare for that. That's another idea, the idea of preparation for judgment, preparation for self-examination, preparation for Rosh Hashanah. And there's another idea about the month of Elul, maybe the most famous idea, is conveyed to us by the Arizal, he quoted a verse in Song of Songs. The verse says, Ani ledodi vedodi li. I am to my beloved, and my beloved is to me. Now in Hebrew, the first letter of each of those four words, Ani ledodi vedodi li, the first letter of those four spell out the acronym of Elul. And what that hints at is that the month of Elul, it's a time of closeness. I am to my beloved. And my beloved is to me. Who is that beloved? That beloved is, of course, God. We are close to God in this month, and God reciprocates that to us. He, too, is close to us in this month. And in addition, there's another verse in Isaiah, Dear Shu Hashem Behimatso, Seek out God when he can be found. So what does that mean that there's sometimes where God can be found, there's sometimes where God is close to us? So the Talmud tells us that refers to the 10 days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. So there are times where God is close, and therefore we should seek him out when he is close. However, the verse continues and says, Karuhu bihioso karov. Call out to him when he is near. And it's been suggested that during the month of Elul, the month that precedes Rosh Hashanah, maybe God is even closer to us. Maybe we have the power to reach out and to connect and to repent during the month of Elul even more than during the 10 days of repentance. And I heard an amazing story this week about the effectiveness of the time where God is close to us. And the opportunity of these auspicious days and how we have to make sure that we don't squander this opportunity. The story goes, it's a story about Rabbi Yitzchak Tuvia Weiss. He's the current chief rabbi of one of the supreme rabbinic courts of Jerusalem. And he was born in Slovakia and he survived the war because he was part of the kinder transports that was, uh, that was done taking Jewish children out of Europe and bringing them to England where they would be taken care of throughout the war. And he arrived in London 
in the end of 1939. And the story goes that he was growing up in this small little town near Preschburg. And 1939, the Germans arrived to the town and no one really knew exactly who they were or how to treat them or how to relate to them. Were they coming with vicious intentions? No one knew that at that point. And this young child who would eventually become Rabbi Weiss, he was conscripted by the rabbi of the town to go and investigate, to find out what's happening by going to visit the big city, the big city of Pressburg. This was a small little town. Go visit the big city to find out what exactly we should do, what exactly is our approach, how do we relate, how do we interact with these uh, newfound overlords. So this young boy, he is able to make it the four kilometers or so to the big city. And he goes to the head of the town there. And he finds out, of course, the situation is really bad. And we need all kinds of divine mercy and divine guidance. But then he tells him that the king of England... He is going to send a train over here. There's a thousand seats in the train and he wants to save a thousand Jewish children. And because this kid, this young child, because he had arrived and he was there and he was meeting them, he's like, I'm going to give you a ticket. Take a ticket so you could go on that train. So the child quickly runs back home. He informs the rabbi of the town what he heard. He goes to his parents They quickly pack up for him a bag and they cry and they send him off and he eventually finds himself on the train. There's a thousand other children on the train. All those children, of course, survive the Holocaust and he eventually became a rabbi in in England and eventually to Antwerp and finally in 2002, he was nominated to become the head of the rabbinical court of Jerusalem. But the story doesn't end over there. After they arrived in England, the king wanted to see the kids. He wanted to meet them. And he sent a message that he is going to visit them in a couple of days. So the day arrived and all the kids were lined up in the roads of the city in two columns. And the king, in his resplendent glory, he shows up. And he starts walking between these rows, and suddenly, one of the kids, kid who had some gusto, kid who had some panache, he jumps up, and he wants to go speak to the king. And right away, all the security guards pounce on him. They say, "No, get away from the, get away from the cavalcade. You can't go see the king. Can't go speak to him." But the king notices the hubbub, and he says, "Okay, I'll bring the kid over. I want to see." what he has to say. So the child, he starts to sing a song of praise for the king, for all the goodness that he did, for his for his benevolence, for his kindness that he saved so many souls. But, the child adds, how can I be happy? The kindness, the benevolence of the king is incomplete. Why? Because my parents... And my siblings, they're still there in the inferno of Europe. How can I be happy? 
maybe you could also save my parents. So the king asked the child, okay, where do your parents live? What's your name, parents, and your siblings? And indeed, miraculously, two weeks later, his parents, his father and his mother, his whole family are actually brought to England and they too survived the war. That's the story. So this Rabbi Wise, he would tell over the story and he says, imagine if this child wanted to convey this message to the king when the king was in his palace. There would be no way for the child to get so close to the king to be able to to speak to him. Of course, there's all kinds of guards and to even get in, you have to go through all kinds of bureaucratic loopholes. There's no way the child will be able to get this message to the king and to be able to save his family. But what happened? The king came to him. The king was near. The king was ready to hear this message because the king had arrived to the child. And he would say this idea, Rabbi Weiss, about this month. This is the time where the verse tells us, God is close to us. Seek out God when he is close. Call out to him when he is near. He's available. The king of all kings is coming to us and he's taking an interest in us and we have to make sure that we don't squander this opportunity. We have that, we have God's ear during this month. Again, it's, it's testified by the great prophet Isaiah that this is the time where God is close to us. It's so important that these days we're so near to God. We have such an opportunity. We have to make sure that we don't squander it. And he would add another point. You know, there was a thousand kids that were saved during this kinder transport. I think eventually it was about 10,000. Incidentally, my wife's grandmother, she was in Vienna and she was a young child and she too was saved in the kinder transports. So we have to be very appreciative of that. We all do, of course. But you have a thousand kids over here and there's 999 of them that didn't have the brazenness to go ask mercy for their family. But this one kid, he saw that there was an opportunity and right away he jumped in it, right away he seized on it. And again, the message for us is, let's be like that one kid during the month of Elul. Let's be the one who says, I'm not going to just sit back and let this year go by like any other year. I'm going to seize this opportunity. God's close. The king is close. I'm not going to miss this 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 chance. I'm going to seize it. And I also think that it's really a great time to be someone who is aware of the meaning of Elul. The Chafetz Chaim of blessed memory, he used to give the following parable. He would walk in the streets and he saw a baker. And the baker was sad. The baker was depressed. The baker was miserable. And he walked over to the baker and says, well, what's, what's wrong? He says, well, every day I have to bake my bread. And everyone comes to the store. They start complaining. Well, this loaf, this loaf is a little too long. This one's a little too short. This one's a little bit underdone. And this one is a little bit overdone. Everyone is complaining and it takes so much out of me. It's so painful till I finally sell all my loaves and be able to 
feed my family every day. It's miserable. It's a miserable job. But sometime later, the war broke out, World War I. And everyone is fleeing, and everyone's miserable, and everyone's scared, everyone's terrified. And the baker's happy. And again, the baker's asked to explain their behavior. Why are you so happy when everyone else is so sad? He says, well, it used to be that everyone, you know, it was, it was a buyer's market. Anyone could complain, I don't like this bread, I don't like that bread. Now people are so desperate for food, no matter how the loaf looks, they grab it off the shelf. I sell out my stock in minutes. When it's a seller's market, of course, the seller is happy. When it's a buyer's market, the seller is sad. And I think we could say that maybe in antiquity, there were a lot of people, a lot of our Jewish brethren, they were really moved by the month of Elul, really moved by the opportunity of Elul, really maybe stricken with the dread of Elul. People were connected to this idea. And therefore, God could say, you know, this one, this loaf, not complete. This loaf, it's not perfect. And unless someone is really, really perfect, only then would God listen to them, so to speak. But today, we're really the idea of people taking the month in the run-up to Rosh Hashanah Kippur very seriously that's something which is vanishingly rare today, sadly. And I think that opens up the door. It's, it's a seller's market, so to speak. It opens up the door for us to say, you know what, maybe I'm not doing a perfect job and maybe my grandfather or my great-grandfather, my antecedents in Europe, they took Elul much more seriously than I did. They really tried to change their life. They really re-examined their deeds. They really took Elul much more seriously than I'll ever take it. But you know what? If I'm doing what I can relative to everyone else that's not doing, not doing anything, it makes my opportunity to really impact myself, to really get God's attention, so to speak, to really seize the opportunity of El, it makes it all that much larger. And it's very, very important for us to not squander this opportunity. You know, these are the days where, again, we're encouraged to ask ourselves, what really matters? What am I really living for? And we know, of course, that we have a soul. And our soul is really who we are. But there's the illusion that we think that our life in our physical orientation, that's really our life. And that's an illusion. That's what the Yetzirah is. The Yetzirah, the evil inclination is there to make us confused and to make us assume that who we really are is our body. And our body's agenda is what really matters. And of course, when you think about it, you realize it's ludicrous because, you know, the destiny of all bodies is worms and maggots. It's all going down to zero. We know that. There is no destiny for the body besides for death. We all know that. Logically, it is ludicrous to put all your eggs in that basket and not think about your soul, to not think about your eternal half. It makes no sense to squander the permanent in favor of the temporary. And even if someone says, I'm not so sure about the permit, do I really have a soul? Do I not? So what? The mere chance of you having a permanent life and a permanent destiny with your soul, that should outweigh the definite end of worms and maggots that is your body. So logically, it makes total sense for us to again try to optimize our life for the life of our soul. Logically, that's sound. 
but we don't necessarily operate as logical entities, as logical beings. We have Yetzirah, we have the vicissitudes of our life, and we don't necessarily stop and think, what am I really living for? And this is the time, this is the month that was created for this opportunity. These are called Yemei Ratzon, days of goodwill, days where God is close to us, days where our actions, our opportunities are amplified. Our voice, our pursuits are that much more likely to be successful. God's close. The king is near. He wants to hear what we have to say. But we have to take the initiative. Even in that famous verse in Song of Songs, Anila do dividodi li, I am to my beloved and my beloved is to me. We have to start. I have to first be to my beloved. God will reciprocate tenfold, a thousandfold. My beloved will be to me. But I have to start. I have to take the initiative. And therefore, I'm encouraging everyone, myself included, to do something this month to acknowledge the fact that I'm living as a soul. My agenda as a soul is what really should animate me. This is who I really am. This is what I'm really living for. The mitzvot are what really matter. The Torah study is what really matters for me in the long term. And we should all take something to be able to say, this is my work, this is my challenge, this is my focus. During this month, I'm going to try to strive to be better in this area of my spiritual life in preparation for Rosh Hashanah and in appreciation of the power of this day. Maybe it could be in the area of prayer. You know, if someone, let's say, was not praying always uh, with with a minion, with a quorum, with a proper quorum, maybe try to strive for that. Now, my grandfather suggested that we know the central theme of Rosh Hashanah is the idea of making God a king over us. It's about crowning God as king, because after all, the day of Rosh Hashanah is the day where God initially became king, because that's the day that Adam was created, and Adam was the subject, and only if there is a subject can there be a king. And therefore, my grandfather suggested, we know every day we crown God as king when we say the Shema. The six-word declaration of the Shema is the declaration of us being God's subject and God being our king. Maybe it's an opportunity for us to focus. Again, it's only six words. It's not so hard, but to think about it. Every time we say the Shema, Shema Yisrael, Hashem HaKein, Hashem Echad, to think about what it means, think about what it means for me. It means I am subject to God. I am subordinate to God. I have to make sure that I am accommodating God and not vice versa. And God's the master. God is the master of me. Eventually, he'll be the master, hopefully, of all of me. Eventually, I'll be able to banish all the foreign masters. I'll get rid of the imposter kings. I'll get rid of the Yitzhara that operates within me. God's the king of our people. Eventually, God will be one. God will be king of all. Think about those ideas when we say the Shema, and maybe that's a great way for us to prepare for Rosh Hashanah. Prepare for the day of God's coronation. Prepare for the day where we all together declare God as king. And also to get in the, the zone, the mode of Elul, in the mode of trying to improve 
of being aware of what we really are, of being, being aware of what we're living for. And hopefully through that, through those efforts, we'll be able to build ourselves over the course of these 40 days into being the person that we really want to be, that we really aspire to be at the end of Yom Kippur. Thank you all for listening. May we have an amazing Elul and a wonderful Rosh Hashanah and Days of Awe. My email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com. Our organization, Torch's website is torchweb.org. I appreciate all the emails. I appreciate all the support that our organization gets from our faithful and loyal listeners. And I look forward to speaking to you next time.